Welcome back to Beyond Well, a program for people who want to explore our interior lives. We're so grateful for the support of Active Recovery TMS, providing transcranial magnetic stimulation in a neighborhood near you. Active Recovery TMS has an incredible success rate, especially for people whose antidepressants have stopped working. And Dr. Preetham Raj is now offering individual therapy to augment your treatment. Find out more at activerecoverytms.com. We're so committed here at Beyond Well to looking at all of the factors that make up our mental well-being, including some of the external things that can rob us of good health. Say you're in the wrong job or the wrong relationship or maybe even living in the wrong city. You can begin to feel as if you're living outside of your value system and that has a huge impact on mental health. We're talking with people who made deliberate decisions to return to their authentic selves and honor their individual hopes and dreams by making huge changes to their lives. These are incredible stories of courage and I think real resilience and I hope you enjoy them. Welcome back to Beyond Well. I'm Sheila Hamilton, and this is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And as of late, we have been talking to people about the decisions they've made at midlife to try to live with more joy and authenticity. And what strikes me is that many people have to go back to the memory of who they were as children to remember what their passions were, what they cared about, what really made them feel alive. That's why I'm so excited to talk to Dami Shoemaker today, who is a writer and an activist who you are going to love. Dami's path at a time when nobody was considered non-binary is nothing short of revolutionary. And that courageous sense of self has really turned into a life of beauty and purpose and harmony. Can't wait for you to meet Dami Shoemaker. So, Around the issue of coming to terms with gender, I want to talk about who you were as a kid. The very first, I know I've spoken with you a little bit about um, when I was around nine or 10 or 11 years old, but when I was even younger, I didn't understand why I couldn't take my shirt off and run around with the boys, mm -hmm. you know, when I was like three or four. Back then, it was like in the late 60s, parents weren't wouldn't let children who were born as girls run around without shirts. I mean, now I think people are a little bit more like, until it matters, it doesn't matter. But yeah. back then, it mattered all the time. But it was really, it, it became kind of a problem more when I was a little older and wanted to like play sports and stuff like that. And in 1975, they started allowing girls to play boys baseball. And I, so I signed up for the boys team and had a hell of an arm. Had the hell of, <laughs> yes, had a hell of an arm. And yeah, I threw it all the way from center field to home base, home plate, made the throw. And some guy stood up and was like, hey, that kid's got a hell of an arm. <laughs> my mom was like, ah, that's my daughter. That's my girl. That's right. <laughs> but even then, you wanted to be identified as just Dommy, not as a person who was a girl or a boy. So how did your parents react to that? Um, my parents were divorced. I think my dad probably would have had a harder time with that. Well, maybe, maybe not. Probably not until I was a little older. Because he was also, he was a baseball player. So he was actually proud that I had taken it up and was a decent baseball player. Yeah, I beat out some kid I, I would, for playing to play third base. And my older brother played right field. 
and I got to play third base and my I had a higher batting average and it was like <laughs> you know it was one of those yeah but my mom was really really supportive it was never about gender then we never thought of it as being about gender it was just about me playing ball and like being me and but it was Idaho and things weren't really delineated that way. Your impulse from a really early age was that I'm not going to be like everyone else. I'm just going to be Dami. And I think that that requires a particular strength of character and a sort of superpower from a very early age to not be in that mindset of, oh my God, all I have to do is just fit in and disappear. Uh, I'm not sure if it's nature or nurture, but I think part of it I think I'm partially blessed because I'm an extrovert. I'm mostly extroverted. So I I didn't retreat and go inward as much, but I did a lot of outward sort of acting out, but it was more humor. Like people, the people accepted me as that's just Dami because I would always just do weird things. I would wear weird clothes and say silly things and get in trouble in class for being goofy. And plus I have ADD now, it's like, pretty severe PTSD. So all kinds of stuff was going on in my life. But I it was never so rebellious that I got in too much trouble. I was always riding the line of getting just enough trouble, you know, just just enough trouble because I, I couldn't figure out, I didn't really fit in anywhere. So I kind of made my own way. When you are um, going through puberty, that's when a lot of people start to have more difficulty with the external messages that people yeah. are giving them, right? Yeah. How, did, how was that process for you? Uh, it was pretty terrible. It was really, really difficult because um, along with growing breasts that I didn't like, um, I got attention from older men that became really, really, really bad because I, I grew large breasts at a very early age. Actually, it's I've got several stories in, in my writing work that's about that. Yeah. Yeah, because there is a way that their objectification of you is really present right? Very, very they have to hide any of that shit. They just get right. to do whatever it is they think they want to do with you, right? Exactly, exactly. And I don't know if it was harder on me. Like, I I don't know if people didn't expect that to happen because I was, I was very much a tomboy. Boys my age didn't pay all that much attention to me because they kind of thought I was kind of like one of them. But older men with large breasts, I swear. And plus, they probably also saw me as a target because I was always trying to please people and be like friendly and funny and goofy. And for someone to take me seriously, yeah, there were a couple of really, really destructive things that happened. That that period in time when men sort of just saw opportunity and took it and didn't even put it in the realm of crime, you know? Right. They didn't. Yeah. And I think that also confused me. I think it also, like, there wasn't language to even to discuss anything about being non-binary for sure. And there wasn't even much language at my age and my location where I was where I was living, where I grew up, about transgender folks either. There, there was not much. It was it was around, but it was very rare to like I didn't know anybody who was transgender that I knew of at all. You know, I was curious about your um ability to even as a young kid to find like chat rooms and people to talk to who are already first of all that shows so much aptitude because the internet wasn't even invented back then. <laughs> nope it wasn't it wasn't so a how did you do that and b what kind of solace did you find in locating these other like-minded people Boy, it was way further on in my life when i started like well i moved first of all i moved away from idaho um, when I was 22 and I lived in California for a year. Um, but when I, when I was here, 
I started going to to gay things and stuff like that. But even then, for years and years and years, it was still there was no there was no language for anything non-binary. There was a time that I met some folks from the East Coast who were really cool, and I met up with this woman in in Las Vegas at this big conference thingy, and she introduced me to all of her friends as he because there wasn't a there was so to to her. I was he, and th- that was understood in our relationship, and it was very specific, and it was very, um, very consensual, and it was just between the two of us that I, I had done that right. Then she started introducing me to all of her friends as he, and referred to me as he all the time, and it felt completely normal to me, except that, and then so when she actually came to visit one time, and my East Coast friends, my my or my West Coast friends were calling me she, and my my East Coast person was calling me he. Yeah. And I remember thinking, yeah, if there was only a way that I didn't have to be either or that I could be both. I'm wondering if now in your midlife, you look back at that place that you went through and go, holy crap, I wish that had been there for that person. Absolutely. Um, one thing that I haven't told you, too, is that the person I just married, she actually works up at OHSU. She's a she's a social worker for the trans health project. She just went from um, working with cancer kids to working with the trans health project recently. It's I've been learning so much so fast. And it's just it's amazing. And that's why it's it's really interesting to see all of the anger and the rage and the disinformation around trans people and trans lives and, and the extra emphasis they're putting on um, the hatred of non binary folks, because it's almost like it's easier to make non-binary folks even less legitimate because they can't even fit into the binary. Because at least the binary is like, you know, at least the binary is like them, you know. And the thing that that does make it cool though, the thing that gives me hope and makes it cool is because it has become so much more understood and so much more accepted. Like I went to a little coastal town this last weekend and I walked up to the counter to, to get a coffee or something and, and the person behind the counter said, oh, no, they asked for this. And they said they like three different times. And so it was very, and I was, I, I looked at them, I said, you, you didn't misgender me. They were like, oh, yeah, we got you. That's just how we are now, because us young ones. And they just started laughing. You know, a lot of the language around um, non-binary stuff, and especially with kids, because there are so many kids who, who are going by they, them now. And it's, and it's really, it's not. The right, I don't, whatever, the right is saying it's about indoctrination and about, you know, our educators are indoctrinated kids. It's like, no, it's not. Those of us who have been working for so long just to be accepted have finally, finally made it okay enough just to be who we are, just to exist. And that has opened the the door, I think, for people to explore who they are. And it doesn't mean that every kid who thinks, thinks they're binary, non-binary is going to be non-binary in 10 years. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But to to be able to give a kid a chance to explore without being ridiculed and harangued and harassed and bullied all the time, enough to be able so that a kid's going to stand up and say, no, I'm non-binary is huge. Your advocacy to me is so beautiful and so powerful. And I and I, we always talk on this program about the importance of purpose and keeping your mental health uh, acute and making sure that you have meaning and relationship. And in middle life, you got all of those things. Could you talk about that a little bit? I am just so glad I made it through my younger years. 
I'm so glad because I like I'm happier now than I ever have been in my life and more fulfilled. Um, I worked in mental health for 22 years and I worked with kids and that was wonderful. That was great. And that fulfilled half of my dream when I was a little kid. I want the two things I always talked about when I was little was being a writer and being a social worker. I, and as a matter of fact, when I was 14, I wrote an, a short story about being a social worker. <laughs> and I found it like a few years ago. And I'm like, oh, my God, I can't wow. believe it. I, yeah. I just want to pause and say um, what Tommy just spoke about was my original genesis for this entire series, which was I've just always felt like when women reach middle age, they're told to kind of reinvent themselves and go do something new and try to find this new win. I really believe that if we get super clear about who it was when we were eight, nine, 10, 13, 14, writing those essays and dreaming about our lives, that we can actually come back to a place of way more joy and real, I think, authenticity. You know, the more you yes. feel like your former self, the more it is that your narratives throughout your life make sense. Absolutely. So sorry for people who, who are told you need to go reinvent yourself and they go do the, you know, plastic surgery or the whatever weight loss or whatever it is they have right. to do. And they are nothing like their former beautiful self. They try to change themselves into it's outside themselves instead of something that's inside themselves. I really, it's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you, Dom, is I feel like you recognize very early this fire and brilliance of yourself. And even though the time wasn't ready for it, you were. I think that that's quite remarkable. Yeah, I think I had to be. And and I don't know, like, I, I'm, I honestly marvel at it all the time, the fact that I survived. I did not treat myself well. I did the best I could for what was going on in my life. Well, and I guess I did treat myself very well because I got out and I left. And I built a life for myself that nobody in my family ever has done. I also worked in microelectronics for several years. <laughs> and like, I was going to be an engineer and I was going to be this. And then I found social work and I was like, oh, yes, that's what it is. Wow. Because at first when I left Idaho, I was just looking for a job. I just needed something to survive, to keep me going. So I got into microelectronics and then I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. Then when the writing stuff happened, that was only back in between 10, 2010 and 2012, I really started getting serious about writing. And it was like, oh, yeah. And it really, it almost picked up from when it fizzled out when I was 17. Um, I had been um, nominated for this poetry award. The National Society of Arts and Letters does this thing. And I really, really have to say the thing that made the difference for me in the earlier years is my teachers. And I had a teacher who was who totally recognized me as somebody who could write nominated me for this thing and there was some really bad tumultuous stuff going on and that's I think recognition and the hope that that gave me is what saved my life okay so going back to your own your personal spark and this personal desire someone has already recognized but the fact that even at midlife you decided I'm veering away from this you know tried and true career to do writing is so brave it is brave what kind of mantras you put in your head at that time to make sure you stuck with it? It's very, very much like you can do this. You have to. I Once I got that spark in my gut again to write and started writing again, I'm like, I hadn't felt that alive. And so that's what I encourage people to do. If you have a desire to do something that, like, if you think back when you were like 
six, seven, eight years old, that magical time when the neurons are firing and you're trying to figure out all these things that are exciting in my life. What are these things that make me happy? What are these, what do I want to do? I hadn't felt that true sense of, oh, this is who I am for so long. I must say though, also one of the things that's really important is that I'd learned to trust my intuition at a pretty young age because of trauma. I didn't learn to trust the intuition. I, I learned that like I acted on intuition a lot when I was younger. I didn't know what it was until I was older and had gone to therapy and be like, oh, that was my survival. Like, okay, so this is my intuition. So I really learned how to hone my intuition and to trust my intuition. And I think when my body and my heart and my intuition all met at the same time with this writing thing, yeah. it's like, oh, I, you're in the right place. Yeah. And my body knew it, my brain knew it, my heart knew it. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to follow this thing up. And then things started clicking, boom, boom, boom. I called the person I was like completely in love with his writing. And I called him and I said, I actually called his phone number and he actually called me back. It, it's, I don't know when your love affair happens during this point, but I love the scene that you're setting for people about finally you've become integrated. Your body is calm. You feel safe. You're alive again. You feel a possibility again. And this is happening, you know, for a lot of people who are going through this kind of deep personal work in their 50s. And I guess my whole um, consciousness behind wanting to do this is I see so many women in particular who are really lost. They are are lost psychologically, physically, mentally, socially. Like they are lost. And I keep wanting to say, there is a past, but yet it's hard. It is really interesting because you know where I work. Honestly, our writing is like the, the things that we do and the things that we put people through, the the, the the writing portals that we put people through. People come to us for, for a reason in the first place. We get so many people who children have just left and who, you know, back in their 20s, they went to grad school to be a writer and then they got their writing completely ripped, shredded. So they kind of gave it up, but they've come back and... I see part of my job is helping them reignite their love for who their writing person is. So that happens all the time. That happens so often. And if people can find, like if there's a dancer, like my partner, you know, 45 years old, loved ballet and dance and does, doesn't have the body of a dancer in her mind, mm-hmm. doesn't have the quote unquote body of a dancer and stuff like that. But she, she, she encourages me. I encouraged her. She found two dance classes. She's so she's doing ballet and tap. And it's like, all right. So you you said in your notes, a kid from Idaho who is non-binary, who gets out, who develops not one career, but two, now has your master's degree, is that right? Correct, yeah. And has bought your first home and is in a loving relationship. Yes. And Dami, I would say if that's not like a, a prayer for middle age, I don't know what is. Thank you. I feel so, so incredibly fortunate. And it's so important to look around you and for me, and I think it's so important for people to look around you and see who the people are in your life. Another thing that happened, I think, honestly, I think COVID might have been part of a natural culling process of my friend group. And I think a lot of us who were assigned female at birth have otherwise known as AFAB (laughs) people, have always been born and raised to take care of other people. And I think when COVID happened, I looked around 
And the people who weren't around anymore were the people who maybe I didn't need to die around anymore. Mm-hmm. I love my friends. And I, you know, I have so many people who are supportive of me and who, and what I do. And the ones who aren't are the ones who didn't, who can't hack it or don't take it seriously or don't take me seriously around that. I, I kind of let go, you know, I think it's, especially at this age, surround yourself with people who care about what you care about, or at least care about you in a way that'll help you thrive and go for what you want to do, you know, support that. I, I, I think you've hit on something that's so critical, Donnie, because a lot of what we do in attempt to people please is carry groups with us that really have outlived their shelf data. Yeah, right. So what are you looking forward to now? It's just the rest of my life. I am really looking forward to, I've got some new projects going on and I'm, I'm looking forward to, I just started helping people as an editing slash coach to deepen their work, to get to the, the real story they really, really, really want to say. Mm-hmm. I am having a blast doing that. And it's so rich and it's so beautiful. And the different people I'm writing and working with are all over from different places in the United States. Their work is so different, but it's their, their, their relationship to the work is just gorgeous. You know, anyway, what it's so- to me is that it's the combination of everything you've done up to it, including third base throwing in. <laughs> it, yes, it definitely combines all of that stuff together. <clears throat> I was talking to like most of my friends are therapists because that was the discipline from which I sort of worked for so many years, right? Um, and I was just saying like, so I didn't go to school to become a therapist and that's okay. I switched it over real quick and became a writer instead, but the work that I'm doing and the, and the people that I'm actually working with are people who are using the work, the writing work in such a meaningful way for themselves that it, it, it's very much like doing that as well. But, you know, yeah, I continue to believe that real writing is the most therapeutic tool we have. You know. I agree. Well, how do people find you, Dami? What's the best, easiest way? Dami at CorporealWriting.com is probably the best way. I do have my own website, but it's a tiny little thing that I look at and pet on the head a lot. But I, but it's not something that's very interactive <laughs> um, because I'm very interactive in other realms because I have a lot of work to do. Totally. So that's DamiShoemaker.com. Okay. Dami, it's been completely delightful. Thank you so much. <laughs>